First, let me thank uh, Jeffrey for, for singing. This was the, uh, the song that was sung at mine and Ginger's uh, wedding 39 years ago on August the uh, 4th. appreciate that. Well, let me ask a question. Have you ever been on trial? I don't know. Maybe someone here, you've had some charges brought against you. Uh, have you ever had to defend yourself with an accusation made against you? I thought about this. I guess that's what lawyers are for. So even if you had, and your lawyer probably did all the talking for you, I, I think for me, what would be the most unnerving thing would be to appear, you know, one of those government panels you see on TV and the show, and you gotta gotta appear before a hostile panel, and you're the one who's got to talk, and everything you say can and will be used against you, particularly when you know that on that panel, most of everyone in that panel is trying to trip you up. They know you're guilty of whatever it is they've got you there for. Well, Jesus anticipated that his disciples would be placed in that very position. And so he had encouraged them while he was still with them with these words. It's from Luke 12. He said, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, Paul now is finding himself in that position. I think I said last week we we left him on the top of a staircase where it's speaking to an angry mom that wanted him to be killed. And we said, well, we'll just have to continue it. Well, the, the Tribune, by the way, was going to try to find out what was wrong. And what he was going to do was he was going to beat it out of Paul himself. He was going to have him scourged to find out what the problem is. Paul has the presence of mind to reveal to him that he, by the way, is a natural-born citizen of Rome. That stops the tribune. (laughs) You cannot do that to uh, actual citizens. And uh, so he then uh, calls a um, a trial, well, not a trial, but a fact-finding committee here with the Sanhedrin. And that's what's taking place. So I invite you to turn with me again to Acts 23. What did we say? That's on page 790, if you want to use the church Bibles. And uh, he's going to stand trial twice, first before the Sanhedrin and then before a Roman authority. Now, the Sanhedrin is the highest judicial council of the Jews. It numbered uh, 70 members. The high priest served as the president or the moderator. And it was mostly composed of the chief priests, the the top-level priests, and lay elders, all of whom belonged to what was called the Sadducee party. The Sadducees formed the aristocracy of Jewish society. And they were known for working very closely, hand-in-hand, with the Roman occupation. They held the the reins of Jewish power politically and religiously. And it was very clear that power and wealth, this is what motivated them. These were the treasures that they they hoarded and desired. 
And there was no priest who was more arrogant, more corrupt than this particular high priest, Ananias. So this is what Paul is facing as he comes before them. So let's pick it back up again, chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul starts off coolly. He perhaps has a prepared speech here. He knows what the route that he's going to take. But he's quickly thrown off guard by Ananias. And Ananias clearly here is asserting his authority. So what we've got here is a match of two strong-willed men. And Paul recovers himself. He had lashed out, but he recovers himself. But it is clear to him that there is a very strong hand presiding over the council, that he is not going to be allowed a long speech that he got away with there in the temple courts. And indeed, anything that he says is going to be quickly contested. All right, what then can he do? Well, two factors are going to help us to understand his next move. Let me go back to understanding the Sanhedrin Council. I said it was dominated by the Sadducees, but there was actually another significant party. You don't want to call it a political party, but another religious party of men, and those were the Pharisees. Now, because of their appearance in the Gospels, because of what Jesus says about them, when we hear the term Pharisee, all we think of is, well, self-righteous hypocrites. And unfortunately, that was true of a lot of them. But the reason why they were even led into their self-righteousness was they had a zeal, a sincere zeal, to uphold the law of Moses. I mean, they really did believe, they understood that Israel's downfall had been because of forsaking the law. And they were ardent in their personal studying following the law, and in trying to compel the rest of the nation to to follow the law as well. They were, if you had to identify them, they were the conservatives of their day. And if you had to, to peg the Sadducees in some way, they were the liberals of their day. And the Pharisees' most famous, or in their eyes, the most infamous member of their party, so happens to be the Apostle Paul. Now, the second factor is this. This is not a true trial. Paul has not been called to be set on trial before the Sanhedrin. They're actually acting because the tribune had called the meeting together. He's trying to find out 
you know, who this troublemaker is. And particularly what he's probably trying to find out is what jurisdiction is he to put Paul under? Is it, is it purely a religious matter? Remember the claim had been that he had brought a Gentile into the temple courts? Well, if, if that's the case, this is purely religious, and here, you Sanhedrin, you ought to take care of him. But if it's something of a more civil nature, well, then he needs to take this on to the Roman government. But having said that, now, what's one thing that is clear here for Paul is this fact-finding committee is out to get him. Okay. Sadducees and the Pharisees do not like each other. Okay? They like the Republicans and the Democrats. But Paul is one thing that unites them. They don't like Paul. They don't like Paul because he is the ringleader of the Nazarene sect that he is propagating the gospel message, which they are opposed to. Okay, so with those things in mind, let's see what Paul does. In verse 6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. They don't even believe in a life after death. Uh, Nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Wow, you... You thought it gets pretty tough in the Senate or in the, the floor of House of Representatives. I mean, these, these, this is tough to be in. So what happens here now? Paul turns the tables on Ananias. Ananias is ruling things with a firm hand. And he causes Ananias to lose control of the proceedings. And he ends up providing himself with an escape from their trap. Now, I doubt that it was actually Paul's intention. I think all he was trying to do is to win some win sympathy from some of his interrogators. Okay, he's, they're all against him, and he's trying to draw some sympathy, and he's drawing it from those for whom Paul has been a he has been a Pharisee, trying to do that. So let's. I'm going to come back to what he actually says, but we're going to go on to his next trial appearance, in which again he is given account. He must give an account of himself. So after this, the tribune sends him on to Caesarea. Okay, so we're going to move to chapter 24 now and be looking at verses 10 through 21. Paul sent to Caesarea, and that's where the governor is, the governor Felix. Okay. Paul is sent there. His accusers are sent there. Ananias goes. And then there's someone who's kind of representing them as a, as a lawyer, so to speak. 
they're given opportunity to first uh, present their case against Paul. And then in a way that they're presenting it is it's kind of like this. They want to present him as someone who goes around the Roman Empire causing civil unrest. Okay. So they, they call him this ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And what they're, they're trying to do there is say, look, he's not one of us. He's a heretic. He's not a real Jew. And he's going around and he's going to the, to the Jewish populations and stirring them up and causing riots and all kinds of troubles. So this is one bad guy. So that's, that's the approach that they're taking. So let's pick up here with Paul's response. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. And all of, all of this is true. But some Jews from Asia... So I'm at Asia Minor, the area that we know now today of Turkey. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you. This day. Now, this is a masterful defense. Paul presents facts about himself that can be verified by evidence. His accusers cannot verify their accusations. Indeed, the so called witnesses who had originally made the slanderous claims at the temple about Paul, they're not here. The case is dismissed. Okay. And furthermore, Paul answers that accusation about his belonging to a, a sect. Again, which was an, an accusation intended to discredit him as, a, as an observant Jew. To open him up to charges, of, again, of disturbing the peace among the Jews. Now, note how he does this. He does not claim to observe the regulations of the law. He no longer can do that. What he claims to do is to believe fully the law and the prophets. 
And he believes in what they have to teach. And that is true. And is so with that, he can have a clear conscience before God and man. So again, well done. Now, up to this time, however, I've omitted what he's actually said. The key comment of Paul's in both trials. And that's his reference to hoping in the resurrection. That's how he created the turmoil in the Sanhedrin, by shouting that out. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And he concludes his remarks to Felix, admitting, well, I did shout that out, and that maybe is what caused the trouble there. But he had also earlier noted to Felix that he has the same hope in God that his accusers have, which is not exactly true, they're Sadducees, but namely that hope is that in a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, however one wants to regard Paul, if you want to just say, man, this is a brilliant defense lawyer, he, he missed his calling, or, you know, here's, here's just a troublemaker, it is clear this. Paul's perspective of the resurrection that is central. It is central to his thinking, central to his ministry, to his heart. And indeed, what these two trials do for us, certainly just what it did for me, was to reawaken. Hey, wait a minute. What is Acts about? What was the mission of the apostles? You know, they were given a commission by Jesus to do something. And what was it? Well, they were commissioned, as Jesus said, to be his witnesses. They were to be his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then, yeah, to the ends of the earth, that Roman Empire. Now, witnesses of what? That Jesus was the Messiah? Yes. That he died for the forgiveness of sins? Yes. But what was the proof? How did Jesus prove that he was the Messiah and that his death did atone for sin? What was it that the disciples, now the apostles, to point to? It was his resurrection. So Peter's very first sermon there on the day of Pentecost presents Jesus as the Messiah who is risen from the dead. And time and again, the apostles will speak of themselves as witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Now, in his trial, on both of these occasions, Paul does not speak specifically of Jesus' resurrection. But his argument to his Jewish brethren is this. Look, the gospel message of Jesus dying and of Jesus rising again, he's saying, that's, that's the hope of the Jewish people in the day of resurrection. That's what we've all been looking to. And so far from preaching heresy, Paul's gospel is founded squarely on the hope of the law and the prophets and the resurrection that is to come of the just and the unjust. The just to vindication, the unjust to condemnation. And so Jesus' resurrection is the proof. It is the evidence that the Messiah has come. And his resurrection now causes us to look to 
the, the resurrection that is to come. So Paul is just saying, what's so terrible about such a belief, about such a hope, particularly to my Jewish brethren? Now, Paul's defense, it's going to work. It's going to keep his accusers at bay. And really, he ought to have been released at that time. The governor, Felix, had no cause to keep a Roman citizen in prison after this. But for his own personal agenda, he will keep Paul in prison. Well, what are lessons that we can take from these passages? I think I see at least two that comes here. And one is actually from a verse that I, I actually skipped over. It's chapter 23, verse 11. This is after Paul has appeared before the Sanhedrin. And it reads this way. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, as I noted, Paul ought to have been released. Felix, the governor, had no cause for keeping a Roman citizen in prison. And when you look back at, the, at everything, everything was just kind of like a comedy of errors. The, the church leaders, because of their poor leadership, they're the ones who sent Paul and put him in his predicament in the first place at the temple. Okay? Because, you know, they weren't exercising strong leadership in their own church, and they wanted to try to appease their people. And then it's by chance that Paul is, is spotted. Look, there are thousands of Jewish worshipers there in the temple. Thousands. Paul gets spotted by a handful of other worshipers from Asia Minor. It just seems by chance. And then for that matter, Paul himself, as we had learned, when he's going to Jerusalem, everywhere he goes, they say, Paul, don't go. It's going to be bad news. You're going to get arrested. This is, this is not good. And so it seems like what's happening to Paul is just, it's all happening from human error. As a result, Paul has to forgo his preaching ministry. He's now, you know, battling for his life. And then he is stuck in prison. Felix keeps him stuck in there for at least two years. Okay? He's just stuck there. But that's what it is from our perspective. Now, what is really happening is that God's will is being carried out for Paul to actually crown his ministry of preaching. Paul never expected that opportunity to preach on the temple grounds to the Jewish people, the gospel, and bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has not had opportunity yet until now that he's been arrested to present the gospel to higher Roman officials. And it will be culminated again. He will go to Rome itself and he will bear testimony for Jesus Christ. And in the, he will bring the hope of the gospel to the capital of Rome. Now, do you ever feel like you're caught up? Kind of in the currents of, the, of like of a sea, just being battering about according to the currents, 
You, you want to go one way, and it seems a good way. It seems like it's honoring to God, and yet you just can't control the events. They're actually controlling you. You feel stuck. You feel like you're being pushed along a, a way that's going against your plans. I was going to do this, but I can't. I was, I was even going to go present the gospel, but I, I can't. Well, take courage. The one task for you is not to figure out how to get your way. How to outwit the system. The one task at hand is to be faithful in your witness wherever you are. In whatever is happening to you. Some of Paul's most fruitful labor is going to take place in prison. He's going to win guards over to the gospel. He's going to have an opportunity to get to gospel places he never could have gotten before. And so to understand, you are not the victim of blind forces. Those forces are in the hands of God. And he is using all circumstances for your good to carry out his will to provide opportunity for you to bear witness for the hope that you have in you. And that leads to the second lesson, the most important. What is that hope? Well, it is the hope based on the resurrection of Jesus, of our own resurrection. Paul would write to the believers in Rome these words. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And speaking here, the resurrection. For in this hope, we were saved. It is in hope that we were saved. Our salvation is not merely, you know, relief from condemnation. It is not about Fire insurance. Our hope is in, in this world, with all of its trials and its pains and its frustrations, is that this is not all that there is. That regardless of the, the comment from the teacher of Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun, there is indeed a new song. There's a new world. There, there is even a new heaven to come when that heavenly bridegroom comes for his bride. And that will be a time for all creation when death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things will pass away. And this hope rests in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. And Paul believed this with all of his heart. 
He believed in this resurrection is what steeled him to, to face whatever suffering was allotted to him. It's what, what spurred him on to preach to anyone, anywhere, under any condition. Listen to him exhort his church in Corinth. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But know that Christ indeed has been raised. With the resurrection, there is all hope. Without it, there is no hope. Remember this, the value of our religion. True value does not lie in that, well, it makes us more moral persons. It doesn't lie in improving our characters. It lies in lifting up our eyes to our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing in his resurrection... Seeing even in his glory our own destiny. We are a people of hope. We are a people with an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We are a people with a destiny, with a destiny that is glory itself. Listen to Paul again speaking to his church in Corinth. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the past, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of the sin is is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when your faith is placed on trial, remember what is truly on trial It's not a philosophy. It's not a world view. It's not even a mere religion. It is our hope. Our hope in the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of ourselves into the glorious kingdom of God. And so, never give up hope. Never let trials discourage you. 
Never let earthly pleasures seduce you. Never let worldly wisdom deceive you, but let the hope keep you faithful to your Lord until the day he returns. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who was buried and yet has risen again. And in his resurrection, we may look to our own resurrection to come. And in the glory that is his, we may look that we, too, will share in that glory. What a wondrous hope. Keep our eyes ever upon our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep our desires, our eyes ever upon that inheritance that is guaranteed for us every day. Every day, let us renew us and renew our faith. Christ's name we pray. Amen.